Appalachia is a place, a culture, a way of life, and a home to a diverse and select few. Farming and agriculture are at the heart of this rugged rural land. WEHC is pleased to introduce a new program to our lineup, Living Appalachia, a show dedicated to exploring and answering your questions about all aspects of agrarian life. Here now is your host for Living Appalachia, Brendan Blevins. Hello, this is Brendan Blevins. You're listening to Living Appalachia. Today I have with me Tim and Tiffany from the Department of Wildlife Resources. We're going to talk about mussels and rivers and creeks and uh, how that interacts with farming a little bit and then just some of the stuff they've been doing to, you know, restore freshwater mussels to this region. How are y'all doing today? Doing really well. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. So let's just, uh, let's get started. But real quick, uh, Tiffany, I believe you're an alumni of Emory and Henry. Yes, um, I graduated in 2013 with um, a degree in biology and a degree in environmental studies. So did that, did going to school in this region kind of push you towards working with mussels? It definitely did. Um, I didn't, I'm, I'm from the area, I'm from Saltville, but I didn't even know mussels existed until I came to Emory and I learned it in my organismal biology class about mussels. And then once I graduated, um, or before I graduated, I did an internship at the Aquatic Wildlife Conservation Center where I work now. That's awesome. The school really does open a lot of doors for people. But uh, tell us a little bit about freshwater mussels. Like, why are they so important to this region? Well, freshwater mussels are unique um, in that they're bivalve, like the classic mussel or clam that we're all familiar with from the seashore at the beach. Um, the only difference is freshwater mussels uh, all require a fish host uh, to complete their life cycle. So they all have these really cool ways to attract fish hosts. You can look on YouTube for, for that kind of stuff. But, you know, like some will use a bass as a host. Well, they have a lure that looks like a minnow, and the bass goes in to bite that minnow and uh, gets infected with these little larvae that look like little Pac-Men. And, uh, you know, some of the mussels use much different lures. They're using little fish, like darters. Um, or minnows, and so they have different lures that look like food items for those fish. And so it's very um, unique in biology um, and very, you know, interesting to think about in a co-evolution type of way um, that uh, these very old mountains here, the Appalachians, have very diverse fish. Um, I think there's over 150 species of fish in the region that live in these rivers and, and streams. And we have upwards of 55 species of mussels in this whole region in northeast Tennessee, southwest Virginia. And so um, them being so diverse, um, when the dams um, were built and, you know, other impacts from humans have occurred, um, we, we've ended up with a lot of species that are endangered um, of extinction in this area because their habitats basically um, been destroyed at a big level um, by human uh, choices and um, development and we basically are at a point where we, we have a few places of really good uh, clean river reaches um, where we can still keep these animals alive and going and uh, that's basically what you know we're tasked with for the Department of Wildlife Resources ensuring that that resource is still available for generations to come. So you guys working with mussels every day, you have to have a favorite mussel. 
So what, what are each of your favorite muscles? So my favorite muscle has to be the Appalachian monkey face. Um, it's a federally endangered muscle that is currently only found in about a 20-mile stretch of the Powell River. Um, so it's endemic to our area, and um, we've recently successfully produced um, juvenile Appalachian monkey face for the first time. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a special muscle to me. I would have to pick the bird wing pearly mussel. Um, they all have unique names like that, and it does kind of look like the like a wing with feathers on it for the shell. But it was one of the first mussels listed endangered of extinction. It only lives in the Clinch River and then over in the Duck River southwest of Nashville. Um, it used to live in thousands of river miles all over the state of Tennessee um, and up into Virginia, North Carolina even. Um, but it's now only in just a few small reaches of those two streams. And I, I like it because its lure, it, it has a little snail uh, that it hangs out, uh, which is, so it's a mollusk pretending to be another kind of mollusk um, <laughs> to attract a, what's called a greenside darter. And that darter, it's a little benthic stream fish, is known for eating snails. So it's just like the coolest, uh, you know, form of coastality that I'm aware of. I think it's just so cool that they, you know, like without the fish, the mussel wouldn't be there. And then the mussel uh, uses the fish for a temporary time to reproduce, but then it grows for years to come and filters the water for that fish and all its progeny for years to come. So it's a good uh, partnership between the fish and the mussel. So I understand that uh, where you guys work with the mussels at Bullard, was the first uh, mussel research facility, mussel breeding area in the country. How did that get started? Well, a spill occurred in uh, Cedar Bluff, Virginia. A truck overturned and this rubber accelerant poured out onto 460, went into a culvert and dumped into the Clinch River. And unfortunately, um, the largest kill of an endangered species occurred at that, that time. Uh, we, we think in the history of the Endangered Species Act that for a single event, that was the largest take of an endangered species. So that's saying a lot. Um, I know over 300 golden riffle shells were killed in that spill, some rough rabbit's foot, and uh, Tennessee bean, all are uh, critically endangered species. And from that, it resulted in a NERDAR case, um, natural resources damages, um, program that the Fish and Wildlife Service basically got money back from the company that was at fault. And from that, we were given um, a, a part of that money to our agency that, to, to build the Aquatic Wildlife Conservation Center. And so the idea was we would learn how to propagate mussels um, and then stock them as we, our agency already is well known for stocking fish, so we did already have uh, Buller Hatchery available, and uh, they basically just built walls over some raceways, and we've been evolving ever since. So working at Bullard and having the fish people there and then having you guys working with mussels, which group would you say is cooler? Like the fish people or, or the mussels? <laughs> I think we're all pretty cool. Yes, we all have our niche. Yeah, we help them out too. I think that it's what's fun is is teaching them how like, hey, you're stocking walleye. Well, we we produce black sand shell with walleye, which is a state protected mussel, and so there's a lot of uh, 
overlap and like they're putting the fish back out in the river for fishermen to enjoy and we're putting the mussel back out so it's filtering the water and interacting with that fish the way that nature intended it to be do you guys ever use a fish to produce mussels and then it gets stocked Yes, yes. And we also, so we work with these, um, like the fisheries biologists, for example, and um, the hatchery um, folks. And sometimes, like, they'll, if they're, you know, producing, let's say, walleye, collecting walleye for um, for production. And so we might get some of those, like maybe some of the males, once, um, like the ones they don't need. So it's a nice partnership. So they're like, you know, help us, you know, um, bring in some fish for our purposes. And then once we're done with them, you know, we'll use them for the black sand shell. And then we'll release them um, wherever they were meant to, you know, to go, <laughs> to go back. So, yeah, we do. A lot of them do go and get stopped. So is there uh, any way farming has had a negative impact on uh, mussels in this region? Yeah, I think you can definitely trace back um, certain practices, completely clear-cutting land, and all those sediments when it rains really hard find their way, you know, into the, the smaller creeks and then ultimately into the larger rivers. And those inorganic sediments um, smother, you know, any life, benthic life in the bottom of the stream bed, especially mussels, which are not mobile they basically where they they're like a tree essentially in the bottom of the stream and so even though a fish can swim out of there or choose a different place where the mud hasn't filled in all the space in the cracks for them to live the muscle is right there so if it gets covered up and and silt finds then that's it it's gonna suffocate and die um but I, i think uh there's other practices that you know probably farmers don't realize um you know it's not all just negative towards the farmer the farmers are very in touch with their land and so i think a lot of places where they have um you know tried to lessen impacts to the the stream through their land and stuff like that we know there's populations of mussels there and it's only because you know they or their parents or whoever before them were taking those those actions to to ensure that um, they weren't making an impact to the, to the streams. So what is something that you'd like to see change that could help mussels as it relates to farming? I, I think, uh, you know, practices like draining wetlands um, sometimes can be very impactful. And, and you know, it, we, we hear a lot of you don't want the government telling you what to do. And that's, <laughs> hey we all get that nobody wants this is a free country and you you should have rights um to to do what you want on your own property as you see fit but what i like to think of is like we're here to help like the government's here um as experts when we can we want to help find programs to help you accomplish what you want to do with your land in a sustainable way you know i don't think it always has to be pictured um you know that that someone's looking over your shoulder and saying hey you can't do that um i think we do get a lot of feedback that like that's what we're doing but that's not you know personally i don't feel like that's our goal in any way our goal is to find a a balance and and say hey like these animals were here before us and they deserve a place here um and uh we all need farmers uh for food and uh, to sustain, you know, humans. And so, like, we have to find a balance, though, that 
you know it's not our nature isn't nature isn't here for us to just use it's we're part of it and so like we have to find a way to coexist um, with everything else yeah I mean, like working with our freshwater mussels, like we are being advocates, you know, for the voiceless, you know, for these animals who can't, you know, speak for themselves. And that goes for anyone, you know, in natural resource um, management. And it's just kind of helping to see all sides and to have everything kind of um, work together, not against any one thing, but just to kind of help everything work. So is there any programs for um, people that have maybe a large river or stream flowing through their land where, you know, they can help preserve mussels on their land if that's something they're interested in? Not particularly um, like a program per se, but um, we definitely know the best reaches of streams where um, quality habitat remains where we can put federally listed species back and so we are always working with local landowners approaching them letting them know um, hey this animal still lives 20 miles downstream we have shell records that tell us it belongs here too but it's not here anymore we'd like to put it back um, we have a site plan developed and permits to do that if if you um, are willing to work with us and allow us access in to your property to put them here. And so, like, you know, ultimately we could get in a canoe and, and you know, float float on down the stream and, and stock them, but we would rather work with the landowner and, and because, like, they're, if they're on board with it um, and, and, like, happy to see that wild animal back where it belongs on uh, their property there, uh, then they're going to be good stewards and they're going to help protect it when, like, we can't be everywhere uh, looking out for them at all times, but landowners are there every day. And so if they see maybe a neighbor doing something that might not be beneficial to the stream nearby, like, they might say something. And, and so, like, again, like, we, we need those partnerships. If, you know, if there's people listening and they own big parts of land along the Clinch River um, in particular, but also like the Powell River um, and the Upper North Fork Holston River above Saltville. Um, all those places are really important um, places left on the map for a lot of these endangered freshwater mussels. Um, everywhere they used to exist a lot is like under lakes now. And like just to put it in perspective, there were still about 45 species in the Clinch River okay, of freshwater mussel, and of those, 20 are federally listed species, so half of them are on their way out, and not only are they on their way out from the clinch, the clinch is the last place they live on the earth, so, um, you know, they're in a bad way. All those species lived in the Holston River, and they're almost all gone from the Holston River, to give you like that perspective where we are right here on at the campus of Emory and Henry this uh, these streams flow into the Middle Fork Holston River and that ultimately flowed into the South Fork Holston River well they both flow into a reservoir now a human built reservoir and that was one of the best shoals for freshwater mussels at temperate latitude on the whole earth before we built that lake 
and it's gone now. I mean, now it's, you know, 60, 70 feet of water and all that riverine habitat is gone. It's covered in mud. And there's a really great trout fishery below that dam, um, mostly with rainbow trout from the western slope of the U.S. or brown trout from Europe. And uh, so, like, we're, we basically have created this, you know, completely different environment for the river from what it was meant to be. And so we're lucky to have, like, the Clinch River, for example, that doesn't have those dams along it. And so farmers, uh, you know, helping get low-head dams out that are defunct, they're not being used for, um, you know, uh, running mills and things that they were used for 100 years ago could be really helpful because they open up that stream again. It's like getting an artery unclogged, and you got um, the fish swimming right up there again. And if the fish are there, then the muscles that use those fish will follow, and nature will be functioning how how it's meant to. So what's, like, the ideal habitat for most of the mussels you work with? Like, describe, like, the ideal river. (laughs) Well, they're pretty diverse. Just like different fish live in different parts of the stream, mussels can live in different parts. But the most important thing would be, like, the stability um, that in high flows and floods that it's not that part of the bottom of the stream doesn't get scoured out. And so that can mean a number of different things, right? Like in in a creek setting that might be in the bend um, of that creek where the water has a chance to go up on the land slightly and not scour away all the sediments versus like a a really high gradient straight area that's going to obviously erode everything out in a high flow. In a river I think um, it's more where bedrock has caught a lot of the sand and gravel out of the creeks so it's this very squishy um, sand and gravel substrate that they can burrow into, but in high flows, it's very stable. It doesn't wash away because that bedrock's acting like little hands, basically holding all that sand and gravel in place. And that's the natural way in these old streams. I mean, the, the Clinch River and, and um, the other arms of the Tennessee River here, the, the, in this part of the Appalachians, this is some of the oldest rivers in the whole world. Um, geologists can tell you that, that these mountains are old and these streams are old. So they've been very stable and like they are for a long time. They're not moving lots of sand and gravel around the way that some rivers in other parts of the country or around the world do. So just keeping them um, like they are, you know, like uh, trying to keep sediments, especially in inorganic sediments like clay finds, from entering the water and and becoming uh, a problem uh, is is one of the the most key essential things for making sure that the correct stable substrates um, are there for the mussels to live in. So what, is there any mussels that follow, that use the uh, brook trout as a host? Because I mean, that's the Virginia state fish there. I don't think so. No. <laughs> they, they tend to live in very small head, you know, headwaters, and if there, it, it is possible. There's a couple of mussels that are associated with that type of habitat: Tennessee hill splitter, the slipper shell, um, and others that um, do live there. I don't know if we've tested that. We do some testing at the lab when we're not sure what the host of a mussel is. Sometimes, like. For example, with the Tennessee hill splitter, we found little sculpins work 
great as a host. So we never have said if they didn't work, we might have kept going and say, hey, does it work on a brook trout? We should try it. You know, it, if it did, it would be a helpful, I think, uh, thing. It's like just like we were talking about walleye before when there's a human uh, like there, there's a fish that humans want around um, and they work as a host for a muscle then that helps us find more partners for for doing what we're trying to do. For what we do um, with muscle propagation, sometimes the question for us, you know, producing the muscles to release them back might not be what's, like, their natural host, but, like, what's the best fish, like, what can we get the best results from, you know, from a fish that we can keep in captivity? Mm -hmm. And I would say brook trout might be harder um, to keep in our tanks, to keep happy right. and to keep alive that long. Um, so maybe that's another reason why we haven't tried them as well. Yeah, like can it be done? Maybe, but it'd be a lot more effort than little sculpins are very easy to hold in captivity. Now, y'all did, uh, I got the opportunity to visit um, where y'all were two weeks ago, and y'all had some really interesting fish there that you're going to try. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so we, I drove all the way to Missouri and was able to get some paddlefish from the state of Missouri, uh, raises them for game fish uh, stocking out there. And those fish used to swim all the way up into these streams, believe it or not. You know, they're more thought of as an animal that lives in the muddy Mississippi or Missouri River. But every spring, the first flood of the year, those fish were known, just like salmon, run up a river to spawn, those fish were known to run all the way up to these headwaters. So just thousands of miles that these fish would swim up here. And as soon as the first dam went in, I think Norris was probably the first dam in our region that went in 1937. That was the last time any of those fish were able to swim up here and spawn like they were supposed to. And so there are some mussels that have not been recruiting for decades, but the old animals are still trying to every year. Um, but we never see babies, that we'd like to try some of these anadromous fish um, to see if they work as the hosts. Um, and, and that fish has been known to, uh, you can keep a population alive in a reservoir, so if like we are able to show it's a host of any of these mussels, we could basically promote um, the fisheries biologists to, to keep a population going in, say, like Norris Reservoir, so then those fish would still, every spring, run up in the clinch in the Powell rivers where these mussels are trying to reproduce. So it's, it's a shot in the dark a little bit. There's other fish, other anadromous fish, but, um, paddlefish are a very interesting thing. They look kind of like a bass, but they have a surfboard clipped to their face <laughs> <laughs> and they use that to, uh, find their food in the darkness in muddy rivers. There it's kind of like a hammerhead shark finding a crab in the sand they use that uh rostrum is what it's called to to feel around and find sense the their little zooplankton food that they want and so like a basking shark or a whale shark goes around filtering the water with their mouth open like that's basically what these fish do in our rivers and they can grow upwards of 100 pounds they're pretty impressive fish they're weird looking fish but they're very <laughs> impressive fish yeah, that's a good way to describe it with a surfboard attached <laughs> yeah. to the nose. It looks very awkward for them. I feel like I don't even know how they find their way around. <laughs> what, uh, what muscle are you hoping 
that that uh, works with? Uh, the one that we particularly want to try it on is called Spectacle Case, and um, it's it's a, a muscle that we know now can live over 150 years. You know, it's like an oak tree of muscles, and here it is. It's been some of them have been living in the Clinch River since World War II. Like it's hard to fathom. You know, like the impacts that we may have had on these individuals <laughs> over that amount of time and shows how tough the adult muscles are that like they've lived through all that but the problem is they can't make babies anymore and so you know you think of it as an oak tree needs a squirrel to carry its acorn over the other side of the mountain and then its baby tree grows that imagine all the squirrels are gone and um you know mom tree is shading out all the the area there so they can't grow like it's it's kind of like a similar uh, analogy to to put it into perspective for people so anyway we uh we heard about the Appalachian monkey face a little bit I understand there's only a few of them left in the entire world do you have like a number on that well we think between uh the Virginia side of the Powell River flowing into Tennessee, that it's probably less than 100 individuals left in the wild. If I mean, it could be more than that. It could be less. We have, uh, we, we, I counted up all the man hours that we had spent since 2016, I think, or 2017, um, looking for that, for um, our efforts to produce it, and it was 1,100 person hours <laughs> spent searching, and we found nine. So incredibly rare animal. We're looking in the best places known left in the world for them and the best uh, best habitats that, that remain. And luckily we did find those nine, and we think we have four females at least. Um, it seems like, you know, the more females we have, the better. But um, we are letting, like, the five males fertilize all of them so we can diversify the genes the best that we can. But they're very old, all of them are definitely older than us, like um, probably 40 or 50 years old, um, for sure. That's crazy to think that you're trying to bring back a species and all the individuals you have are older than, <laughs> than you. Um, but we, we, they're of the, you know, we have produced them now, and so Tiffany, you should tell them, like, how many um, we've stocked out. So this summer and fall, we stocked 125 um, one-year-old um, Appalachian monkey face um, back to the Clinch River. So we've, you know, doubled at least um, the number of, of Appalachian monkey face in the wild. We think. We think, <laughs> we yes, hope. we think. We hope. Yes. By the best estimate. <laughs> yes, by the best estimate. <laughs> but how do you, you've talked about stalking them and then about finding them in the wild. How do you do that? Can you walk us through the process of how you find them in the wild and then how do you put them back? So trying to find the Appalachian monkey face, like Tim said, we, we went back to sites where, where they were found before, so where we knew, knew they lived, um, and habitat where we know they're host fish that we now know, um, where the blotched chub lives. Um, and so we'll snorkel um, around in the river in the Powell and just look for their little siphons. Um, <laughs> the way their, their shell is shaped, they kind of, um, they kind of sit kind of, um, I don't know, they kind of like lay on their side in the in the substrate. So it's easier if you kind of look back and you can see their um, their aperture easier. Um, so that's, that's at least how I've kind of found 
how we can find them. So when you're looking for them, when someone finds one, is it like a huge celebration? Oh, yes. Like you Absolutely. just won the Super Bowl, basically. Absolutely. I like to, I like to slowly walk up to Tim and just hold my hand out. <laughs> yeah, and like fists shoot up in the air like, oh, my gosh. You know, like a lot of times, I'm not kidding, we would spend two weeks looking, going back every day or every other day. And we had one to show for it. It's it's very disheartening at times that it's like we may, it's, you know, we don't have the last northern white rhino, this charismatic thing we're working with, but it's just as rare. And, like, um, it's it's scary to think, like, we're the ones who it's fallen to us to, you know, try to do the last thing we can here to save them. We hope we are. But, you know, in, in some cases you have to admit, like, we may be a little too late, Um they're the genes that they may have needed to really be viable long into the future may have been lost. We hope not. And that's why like our program will work to um, get geneticists involved and try to come up with a breeding program. I'm sure if farmers are listening, they, they do these things, uh, have different lines of different animals are better for this and that. Like we, if maybe we can find muscles that are, are better for living in the clinch river instead of the pal, um, then we'll produce those purposefully to keep in the Clinch River. And if some are better for the powder, then we'll stock them there and just keep spreading out that risk for them as far as we can. So if any single like event, like the unfortunate spill that happened at Cedar Bluff, if that were to happen right now at the Virginia-Tennessee line, like we'd lose them forever. You know, like it's scary to think about that. So when you go to stock them back, though, do you have to go, like, place them down or do you just start throwing out handfuls of mussels and <laughs> no, the, no these are very rare mussels so they all have pit tags what passive and passive integrative transponder thank you um so we can um so we can find them easier so we we pit tag them and they also have their in, little individual tags and we plant them um gently into the into the substrate in kind of a grid so when we can come back to monitor them, we'll use our pit tag reader um, to kind of pick up. It's kind of like a metal detector that will sense the, the pit tag. Um, yeah, if anybody has a cat or a dog at home and you put their address in the little um, tag that goes under their skin, it's the exact same technology, but we cover it with dental cement on the shell. So it's basically the same material the shell's made out of, it's like a tooth, um, and that way... Um, it's like a glass pill, so that helps it not to get broken, and that can send a radio signal out. We've got some that we've tracked since, not that species yet, but some pit-tagged animals we've tracked since like 2013 or 2012, and they're still on there and still working. So they're they're a cool little piece of technology because they don't require a battery. They just send a signal back from the antenna that you're carrying around. So pretty efficient way to find uh, hard to find little creature in the bottom of the river. So, um, <clears throat> is there any predators for these mussels? Like, what's a what's a natural predator for them besides humans? Because I assume there's someone out there who really <laughs> wants to eat some mussels. <laughs> um, so, natural predators: um, muskrats, um, otters, raccoons. Um, we know. You know, little guys like that like to, um, you know, you know they they eat freshwater mussels and also Asian clams. If you see like a muskrat midden, which is just like this little pile of shell on a you know riverbank, 
Um, mostly, luckily, it has Asian clams, but definitely some mussel shells. So have the introduction of Asian clams been negative towards mussels? Yeah, that's where, that's what we think. That's what science thinks at this moment. Um, there's just a lot of reasons to think they've had a huge impact because the timing of when they really showed up and became prolific nationwide is when our native freshwater mussels really began, began to decline. And really the, the main um, thing that has happened across the country and even around the world now is that recruitment has stopped. They, the adults can persist. There's enough for them to live and grow, but they, they can no longer um, reproduce. And we know um, from going out and collecting the gravid females, sperm meets egg and the little larvae are forming in the female and they're luring the fish and the fish are around. So it seems to be from when they're drop metamorphosis, metamorphosing on the fish's gill and, and dropping to the stream bed, something in that process seems to be the problem. And we're not sure if that's chemical, we're not sure if that's temperature, we're not sure, um, you know, if, if it has something to do with the sediments in the stream bed or heavy metals that have found their way into the stream bed that juveniles are more sensitive to. And so there's just a lot of people trying to figure that out. Um, and also disease in mussels is like an emerging topic. We know more about that in fish and other aquatic organisms, but with freshwater mussels it was kind of ignored a lot and so there's not even like books to learn about the diseases that exist in mussels they're just learning these in real time right now and it could be that clams asian clams have spread some of that that we don't understand too so that could be part of the problem <clears throat> so what's the biggest freshwater mussel in this area the biggest the uh -huh. biggest size wise is probably the elephant ear huh. And it's sense. a well-named <laughs> muscle. It feels like it's made out of iron. Um, they're probably, I don't know, they're probably two pounds full grown, which is like heavy shelled animal. Um, some of the animals we work with full grown uh, are just the size of a peanut, <laughs> so to give you like a, a different uh, perspective. But these, that muscle definitely uses an anadromous fish called skipjack which is a herring. Mm -hmm. And so those fish, those little minnows, were swimming from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up here to drop those mussels off. And just to think, like, those mussels are still living here but haven't reproduced again since, like, World War II. It's, like, hard to believe that they've been able to hang on this long. So, so we've heard a lot of interesting names of mussels. Yeah. <laughs> Who gets to pick those? So I, I, yeah, I think it's old white guys, like old white guys. in the basements of museums, like, <laughs> like if you like read historically, um, you know, guys wanting to put their names on this. I, I discovered this, I discovered this. And they're just sitting with jars of formalin and alcohol in these basements. I, I'm imagine with candlelight back in, you know, the, the turn of the century, 20th century, um, and a lot of them do look alike. And so, like, they had to start coming up with that one's the monkey face. That one is the elephant ear. Some of them make sense like that, and then others don't make sense at all. Like, there's one called a creeper. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's one called, uh, 
a cracking pearly mussel. I mean, I, I guess that one, the shell cracks easy or something. And then one, interestingly, is called a heel splitter. And uh, one of the guys who used to work with uh, mussels back in the day, he stepped on one of them, got an infection in his foot, and died. So I'm pretty sure that that one has like an actual like, interesting story behind where that one's name came from. But they don't always all make sense like that. <laughs> what would you say is like the weirdest, weirdest name muscle? Uh, the ones we work with? Mm-hmm. I think Snuffbox is pretty funny. Snuffbox. Snuffbox. Yeah, they must have got big enough to keep their snuff in their pocket in yeah. or something. Is there a uh, a record ever of people um, in this region eating mussels back in the day? And kind of how did that like phase out? Well, we know that Native Americans, there was entire, like, uh, civilization, like, like cities almost here in the Holston Valley region that um, archaeologists have found their remains and, and huge shell middens. So, like, this was protein. I'm sure when times were tough, you walk out in the stream, you can at least get mussel meat and crack that open and, and eat it. It doesn't taste like much, you know, like I, I don't know how they would have flavored it or if they just ate it like it was and were happy to have food. Um, but we know that, like, people were doing that all along the Mississippi River prior to European settlement. Um, I think the biggest thing mussels were harvested for was to feed hogs, um, at least from the records. They, they were... They would break them open and look for pearls and then feed the meat to their hogs. And it was known, they have a terrible smell of dead mussel meat. It smells worse than dead fish. It, it's really bad. And, uh, you know, like there's accounts of people complaining that these people are coming through and, and getting all the mussels out of the river and like leaving all the, the meat around and it just like smelled awful. Um, but I, I don't know if there's like many accounts in recent history of Americans um, eating freshwater mussels, if they if we could get them back to how they should be, um, and the numbers like maybe that would be an option. But right now, you're not even supposed to collect a mussel um, without a permit in in the state of Virginia. And with, with all like the pollutants in our waters now, it's definitely it's not great for human health. Where <laughs> mussels are filtering um, and bioaccumulating everything in our rivers. That's true. They they can filter ten to twenty gallons of water per individual mussel per day. So yeah, anything in that stream will find its way into their body. <laughs> so. Yeah. So with them having to have that much water flow past them, how do you guys keep them alive? at the place do you like how do you keep that water flow and that new water coming through so we have several different systems um, at our facility uh, kind of geared toward the different like the ages of our muscles and the different life stages we have like a sediment tank system that flows and that turns over the water in the tanks once a day in the morning so it's not a constant flow but it gets a, a nice um water exchange in the mornings. We have other systems that are flow through. So we have big sump tanks and we have pumps um, that bring in water from our head race that comes from our ponds that feeds our muscles um, constantly. Um, They'll get a constant flow of water and then it just flows out our drains back into the South Fork. So kind of different requirements for different ages, but just kind of depends on um, 
like how we're feeding and what time of year it is. Um, in the summertime, we have like our floating systems, like our flub seas outside in our ponds where the mussels will sit in baskets in the pond. So they'll just be submerged constantly with um, upwelling water um, and other tanks that kind of just trickle in. And like a rain, what we call a rain systems that um, water flows into the pans and then out. And mussels um, may be sensitive to like chemical fertilizers, and the water from the South Fork Holston is very, uh, it doesn't have a lot of production in it. It's a very good trout stream. So, like, when that water comes into our ponds, we do fertilize it, but with alfalfa pellets and soybean meal, just a natural energy in, energy out. And so, the plankton will start to grow, the phytoplankton and zooplankton. And then we keep fish in the ponds that basically eat zooplankton, rotifers and water fleas, those type of things, they're going to they're gonna eat those up, and that's going to let that algae, that phytoplankton, continually bloom because the zooplankton won't uh, be available to eat it. So that, that allows us to basically have this, like, very green water um, pumping through the systems, and that's what the mussels like to grow on, like filter out and bacteria, things like that. Now, for the fish that are used to... Um to reproduce with these mussels do you guys have to take care of those fish or do you let the fish people no so we take care of i mean everything that we bring like into our facility you know they're under our care so we'll go out in the spring you know we'll um, electro shock electro fish um the host fish that we need and while they're in our care you know they're in our systems we're feeding them every day you know you know monitoring their health and then once we're um, once the mussels are have dropped off the infestation you know is done um then we'll release release the fish back so they're always in our care yeah and it sounds bad to electrofish but yes. it's not we're not trying to shock them and stun them we, we're just scaring them into a sane with it it's just a more efficient way of saning really and sometimes other fish will just sane like different shiners are really sensitive to the shock so um we'll just end up saning them and it's easier it's easier on the fish is there any effect on mussels of them being shocked when there's, like, electrofishing going on? Do the mussels... There's a paper out that someone asked that question and looked, and they did not find any um, negative issue with electroshock and overtop of the mussels, luckily. So they just seem to clam up and kind of wait for you to go away, and then they open again. So they kind of have a good defense against it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but normally the fish that we'll bring in, um, we try to get them from... The Holston River mainly, um, where mussels aren't as abundant. Um, we do have to go to the, the clinch, you know, sometimes to get a certain fish. But we try not to take fish from the river um, where we know that mussels are abundant because they're using them as hosts the same time we're trying to use them. Um, so we try not to do that when it's possible. So we don't run into that as much, I don't think. What mussel in this region is, like, most abundant at the moment? Probably the rainbow mussel, Velosa, or now it's Cambrunio iris. Um, it lives in almost all the creeks and main stem streams in the region. It, they just are very tough. Um, I've proposed, like, maybe they, they were meant to live in beaver dam-type habitats, like altered stream habitats. They, their host is a rock bass, a red eye, which also humans like to have around. And so they're very fit to live here. Their host is very abundant. 
um, and then they're tough. So yeah, I would say most streams around here that haven't had heavy industrial impacts or mining, direct mining seepage uh, impacts, they live in them. So is there um, ever been a case of like a hatchery inadvertently having a whole bunch of host fish? Um, like on, like is there anything that would uh, use rainbow trout or brown trout or anything like that, which are popular fish, and then it like infest a stream or a river? <laughs> well, what ends up happening a lot is in these reservoirs, they get stocked with, say, bass mm -hmm. or stocked with bluegills. Well, those fish might come from Arkansas or, you know, Missouri. Like, I just went to find some from a hatchery there or Alabama. And so the mussels are different from those places. And a lot of times those fish will get stocked in a reservoir. For example, Hungry Mother right up the road, Hungry Mother Reservoir, has a lot of paper pond shells, um, which they shouldn't even live in this region but that reservoir has a lot and that's purely from humans putting that fish in there unknowingly were infected with that muscle and then they dropped off and they are surviving in there so they're not really causing any harm they're not going to be able to get out of that reservoir they're not they don't like riverine habitat they like lake habitat so even if they were to wash out of the reservoir they wouldn't survive downstream but that that's the most common example of humans moving a fish around and then like the mussel has found its way. But there are examples of like eastern elliptio which only live in Atlantic slope streams, anything that's flowing, you know, to the east coast. They're probably one of the more abundant mussels. Like rainbow is in our region, they're uh, similar in those. Well, they've been recently found in the main stem of the Ohio River. So obviously someone's moved a fish or a bucket of bait or something a thousand miles and it's found its way into that main stem of the Ohio and I have a feeling once they're in there they're going to become an abundant muscle in there because they are very good at what they do so you know there's there's always unintended consequences to human actions that you know we kind of find out way too late to do anything about like that so but so like the muscle that's in Hungry Mother, it's not going to pose a threat and there's nothing that really needs to be done to, to there's no plan to remove it. I don't think so. And uh, it would take poisoning the, the whole lake to get rid of them. And, you know, the, the cons would outweigh the pros in that situation, I think. So we've talked about how they filter everything through. Are they... Our muscles, do they tend to be pretty tough, or is there certain things they just can't handle as far as being in the water? So ad adults are, are tougher. Um, they're not as um, sensitive to things. But, like, heavy sediments is just is, is a bit, big thing, um, I think, for any age muscle because they're filtering, you know, so they're trying to eat. And if they're spending all their energy, like, filtering out sediments, you know, they're expending all that energy and not getting in any, you know, any food. Um, and so that's that's probably a big thing in general. And then like heavy metals, we know toxicity-wise, like they're they're one of the most sensitive organisms that we've ever tested that scientists have ever tested to potassium. Um, so potassium's a really bad uh, thing for them. If you wanted to eradicate a muscle out of a lake, 
you would use potash, which is just K2. You would just put that in there, and they can't sense it. They It's uh, similar chemically to calcium, which they do uptake a lot. And so it, it will basically just make, it will destroy their gills and their whole mechanism for filtering, and they'll starve to death and die if, if they come into contact with potassium. So don't throw banana peels in your local street. <laughs> um, and also I, ammonia. Yeah, ammonia is a, a really ammonia. big one that we know. But things like nickel, cadmium, manganese, which, you know, are all associated with um, strip mining, runoff and things, um, are, they're very sensitive to those in particular. Now, you said you were from Saltville a few yes. weeks ago. We had uh, the Saltville town manager on talking about um, the salt mines there. Has that had any effect, the mining in Saltville on mussels? Because I know it's not really, I don't really think of salt as something that needs to be mined, you know, every day. But like when someone says mining, mm-hmm. um, but has that type of mining had effect on anything? Um, I don't. I'm not sure. I just I just know about the like the mercury in in the North Fork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, it's hard to to say how salt impacted the North Fork Holston, but it is easy to show how uh, you know the 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 Muck Dam disaster and um, everything associated with the the. Uh, huge Superfund site that remains there below Saltville is, is having an impact from that part of the river all the way down into Tennessee. You know, it, it, uh, it's basically devoid of mussels, and we know that 35, 40 species of mussels should be in the river um, in that reach, and I think there's probably like three. Um, and they're the toughest of the tough that survive it. So I think it's possible that the impacts used to be worse, and they they have gotten better. But um, you know that is uh, definitely a reach a stream that it needs a lot of help. It, it it'll take centuries of dedicated work to to really bring that particular reach a stream back to the way it should be. So does is there an effect on freshwater mussels when the water gets a little saltier? Has there been any research done on that? Uh, I'm aware of some studies that um, they it it can for an adult it it can be useful to them. That's salt isn't a common thing um, in a freshwater environment <laughs> typically, but um, you know that they can get a boost from it. But the, I think like once it gets over a certain amount, then it's it's deadly to them. I think it's it, it's also like theorized that the like the higher the salinity it can affect the glochidia um which is the muscle larva um so when the muscle releases its its glochidia um into the water or like onto the fish when when the glochidia senses the salinity the saltiness they'll shut onto the fish gills and so it's also thought that maybe um the higher salinity may cause this glochidia to shut prematurely um, and kind of, you know, end, stop that, you know, like the transition from muscle to fish. Yeah, ultimately make them like a dud. They do come out of their mom and they are fully formed, but if they're already clamped shut, they don't attach to the gill and they just float away and, like, they never they never survive. So we've also talked about 
fertilizer a little bit. There's not a, you can't just like, fertilizer isn't great for him. Um, how does runoff from farming affect that? Like runoff from, you know, fertilizer runs off occasionally when you over-fertilize a plot of land. Has that been shown to have a negative effect on mussels? I think certain fertilizers definitely. I, I can't name them. Uh, you'd have to talk to a biochemist about that. But, um, you know, we know much more about point source pollution and the permits for that help us to understand exact chemicals. that are. But it's these broader um, applying fertilizers and chemicals over, like, a large swath of land how does that even percolate and find its way into the stream? And, like, you know, it becomes a very complicated understanding process for how that might be impacting them. But mussels do uh, respond positively to um, eutrophication of the stream. Um, Like we're fertilizing our ponds, it, it helps make more food in the water for the mussels. Um, and I, again, like I think beaver dams were accomplishing that naturally before human impacts that they were existing sporadically on the riverscape and in those areas, algae, just like our pond were, were becoming abundant and then mussels were probably very common below those areas. But now that we have removed beavers in (laughs) most places, um, I know they're not popular with farmers in particular, um, you can imagine like that stream now is probably, it probably doesn't have as much energy and, uh, life existing in it as it used to. It's, it's more just what's coming out of the groundwater and floating straight on through. And so the, again, like that's why wetlands and not draining them or, or finding a way to coexist with a beaver on your property, just over on one part of it could be, um, a helpful thing for for the rest of the river life um you don't you know he's bothering bothering you over there by like it's part of your land that you can't use for uh putting your your livestock on but if you could just fence that off and 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 use the rest then uh, there's a way to coexist i think so as we come down here on time a little bit we still got about five minutes I'm doing it earlier than I normally do, but is there anything uh, you'd like to tell people about, like, mussels, something we haven't covered, or, like, uh, farming, or just really anything you'd like to let people know about what you guys do? Um, (laughs) I don't know. Just realizing that mussels are a very important natural resource in our rivers, um, and not just, you know, keeping our rivers clean, you know, it just helps the whole ecosystem. You know, our mussels, our fish, hellbenders, you know, crayfish, everything, everything in our rivers. And we all love clean water, you know, we love to fish, we love to swim, you know, all this recreation and, you know, helping like protect our mussels really protects everything, I think. I'll just say, I, um, my mom grew up on the Clinch River on a cattle farm, beef farm, and also tobacco farm. And um, I wanted to be a farmer when I was little, going to visit my grandparents. And uh, But there was always that river down there that they, they relied on it as much as they did the land. Uh, my grandpa used to catch fish down in the stream and live off of it, like eat it. And uh, 
they knew about hellbenders. They called them Grampus in this region. I don't know if it's like that in every region, but um, just I, I feel like uh, farmers, they, they're taking care of their land and hoping to pass it down to the next generation. And so they're very aware of what's happening on their land. And, like, you should just uh, – I would – hope that farmers would also really care about what's happening in their stream that's your stream this is your heritage whether you realize it's living there or not you're passing that on to future generations to be able to swim in that water uh to fish and and eat in that water maybe the deer you hunt drink out of that water there's just a lot of reasons to uh to to work um for keeping your your water on your land or what's flowing by your land clean and keeping it sustainable for for nature to do its thing out there so. now you did say a hellbender real quick and i know you yeah. guys have a hellbender at the office we do you uh <laughs> i think it has a name doesn't it his name is cletus we're not sure if it's a male or a female but we just we call him cletus That's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, real quick, how did you guys get a hellbender? Because, you know, I'd love a pet hellbender, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm not allowed to have one. I think he's 13 years old. Um, a clutch of eggs was found in the South Fork Holston that was abandoned. And so our predecessors that worked at the facility brought those into the lab and uh, hatched them out and raised them. Um, and I think several of Cletus's siblings ended up at... Um, aquariums like Virginia Beach, Myrtle Beach maybe, um, a couple other uh, forest service offices. None of them were released. They were all just, uh, they're all used to promote clean water um, and show people like this isn't a, a harmful animal in any way. They they basically are just scavengers that eat crayfish and dead fish. Um, they have a bad sometimes have kind of a bad reputation but I don't really know where it came from because they're not aggressive and they're very docile and just if they're if they're around then your stream must be in pretty good shape the water quality must be in good shape so he's cool cool guy to keep around and we feed him crayfish and come see us come to the aquatic wildlife conservation center over at Biller Hatchery and uh, come tour and see what we're doing there and you can see Cletus. Uh, if somebody wanted to get in contact with y'all, how would they uh, do that if they had questions about mussels or if they think they have something, you know, or would like to help? You can call us at the facility. That's 276-783-2138 and leave us a message or we'll pick up. Um, or you can email me, which is tim.lane at dwr.virginia.gov. All right. I'd like to thank you guys for coming on, and I'd like to thank everyone for listening to uh, Live in Appalachia on 90.7. Hope everyone has a great week.